Well, thanks, Andrew. <clears throat> and yeah, I'd just like to say briefly how thankful um, my family and I are for Cross City Church and for the way that you've all loved us and have really cared for us well over the last uh, number of years. So it's really a joy to be with you again, and we're just really thankful. Um, and now we'll transition quickly to a more morbid thought. Um, I, I wonder, um, as we begin our sermon time, if you've ever thought about what you would do if you knew that you were dying. So certainly it's true that all of us are going to die someday, um, but what I mean is more if you knew that it was imminent, like that you were going to die in the next day or two, um, what would you do? And specifically thinking, what sort of instructions would you have for those people that are closest to you? Um, so think of your, your parents or your spouse or your children, or maybe you have a really close friend um, or coworker. What, what information would you want to share with them or what would be your final instructions to them um, for their good, you know, for them to really be able to do well uh, in your absence. And <clears throat> when I think about that, for, for my situation, I think, first of all, of my, my wife and my kids, and um, would really want them to be able to do well without me. And so there would be a lot of things I'd want to convey to them. I'd certainly want to reinforce my love and how much I'd miss them and things like that. But from like a pr practical uh, standpoint, one thing would be is I'd want to uh, cover finances and just kind of review, okay, Jess, you know, this is what we have in savings and this is how to access it and this is our, our life insurance policy and so just kind of going over nuts and bolts stuff like that. Um, if I had hidden money under the mattress or in the backyard, like you certainly need to go over that too. Um, um, and then for my kids, I'd be thinking about their development, spirit, specifically their spiritual development and what what lessons have we covered or maybe not covered or what things we've talked about, but I'd want to just reinforce again for them. Um, that would be really high on my list. And maybe I'd even write them a letter or record myself in a video, something that they would have with them that when life got difficult, they could go back to and kind of review and just be reminded why it is that they can trust Jesus um, and really stand firmly on him. In the passage that we're going to look at today, uh, in John 14, we're going to find Jesus in the middle of his final instructions to his disciples. Um, so he's at the end of his three years of public ministry, and he's in Jerusalem with his 12 disciples celebrating the Passover, and he knows that his betrayal and his crucifixion um, are imminent. They're going to happen really soon. And so it's in light of that that he gives them his final instructions. And in these chapters in John, John 13 through 16, we find some really rich teaching from Jesus as he really focuses on, in on some important topics for his, his, his disciples. And this is collectively known as the farewell discourse, and then Jesus will follow it up in John chapter 17 with his high priestly prayer. Um, so for three years, the disciples have spent day and night with Jesus. They've been with him as he's healed the sick and calmed the storm and cast out demons. They've heard Jesus uh, teach about the kingdom of heaven. And so they've learned a lot from him, um, but there's still a lot that they haven't fully grasped in terms of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Um, Jesus had told them, for instance, he told them many times that he was going to die, but they, they weren't grasping that at all. Um, but Jesus knew that he was going to die, his time had come, and he was going to be going to the Father. Um, 
he knew how difficult that was going to be for his disciples, that they were going to be without him. They would be facing confusion and turmoil. Um, and he also knew that, that the father planned to establish the early church through these same disciples. So he knew what was at stake, and he knew how important it was to really uh, give them some good instructions. And so we find that in the farewell discourse, and the passage that we're looking at today falls in the middle of that discourse, those final instructions. So I just wanted to briefly kind of share some highlights. Um, in John 13, we find Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Um, in that day and age, walking on the roads, your feet would get quite dirty, and so in addition to washing your hands when you came inside, it was also important to wash your feet, and that was usually a job for like a, a, the lowest person in the house to do, but Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Even though he was their Lord and Master, he demonstrated humility for them and did something that was helpful and for their good, and so in so doing, he really showed them what sacrificial love was like, and then in verse 34 of chapter 13, he tells them, um, in the context of having just done that, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So that's chapter 13, We're, our passage today is in 14. Later on in chapter 14, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit and, and gives some really great teaching on the Holy Spirit, and he does the same thing in chapter 16. Chapter 15 of John is uh, a well-known passage, the vine and the branches, and so Jesus tells the disciples that just as a, a branch, if it doesn't abide in the vine, can't bear fruit, neither will they bear good fruit if they don't abide in him. And then he ends chapter 15 by, by telling them and warning them that persecution will come and that the world will hate them on account of being his followers. Um, so those are kind of the highlights of the farewell discourse. Um, and now we're going to pray and then look in more detail at chapter 14 um, and some of the instructions that Jesus has for his disciples. But first, let's pray and ask for God's help. Uh, Lord, thank you again for this time to be together um, and to sit under your word. We just ask that you would teach us, um, that you'd magnify Jesus and help us to see um, how amazing and awesome he is and to see how by, by trusting in his nature, by trusting in who he is and what he's done, uh, we can have life, the life that you created us to have. So please, would you help us now? Amen. So let's read John chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we see here the context of our passage. We see that the disciples are troubled. They're worried. Um, and why are they worried? Well, they're worried because Jesus has just told them um, that he's leaving them and that they're not going to be together. Um, if you bump up just a little bit to John 13, just a, a few verses prior, in verse 33, Jesus says, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. 
And in verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. So they're worried because Jesus is leaving, and they're also worried because Jesus also tells the disciples, or tells specifically Peter, that Peter's going to deny Jesus three times. Um, So even though Peter was one of his closest followers, the news that Peter would deny Jesus also was probably unnerving for the disciples. Um, So it's in view of these reasons for their worry that Jesus gives them a command in verse 1. He tells them, believe in God, believe also in me. And then Jesus goes on to explain that there are many rooms in heaven for them and that he's going to prepare a place for them and that he'll come and bring them so they can be together once again. And then he ends his short attempt to calm their fears by telling them that they know the way to where he is going. And then we find Peter in verse 5, he says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? So you see there's some uncertainty. There's a little bit of misunderstanding or confusion on the disciples' part about what exactly is Jesus doing. And then he responds in verse 6 with the well-known words, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So in our passage, we see that the cause for worry is a failure on the part of the disciples to fully understand who Jesus is and what he's doing. And then Jesus graciously reassuring them, telling them to trust him, verse 1. Trust is another word for believe, so verse 1. And then giving them three bold, life-giving descriptions of his nature that the disciples can firmly stand upon after he's gone. So what are those three bold, life-giving descriptions of Jesus' nature that he gives the disciples? He tells them he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. And so now we're going to look at each of these in turn, and we're going to consider why Jesus commands trust in these descriptions of his nature and why trust in these descriptions lead to life. So first, Jesus is the way. He says, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. We see Jesus asserting that he is the way to the Father. He's the path that brings people to God. And if you'll notice right away that he doesn't just say that he is a way or one of many ways, but he is the way. And then he makes his exclusive claim even more clear by saying, no one comes to the Father except through me. So this means that there aren't other ways to God, and that's a message that we need to be reminded of regularly. Um, The other major world religions don't lead to the God. The, the cults that we're familiar with in our country, they're not the way to the Father. Being a good person, following the golden rule, being generous, um, those can be good things, but in and of themselves, they don't lead to the Father. Neither, neither does growing up in a Christian home, going to church or a Bible study. Those can be great things, but in and of themselves, they don't lead to the Father. Being, quote-unquote, spiritual or practicing mindfulness or being passionate about a cause won't in and of itself lead to the Father. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected, that anyone gains access to the Father. Acts 4.12 tells us, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And Paul tells his protege Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.5 and 6, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. There's only one way to God, and Jesus is the way. And as we, as we consider this, as we consider why Jesus is the way, 
we must also remind ourselves why was a way needed? Why do we need a savior? Why do we need a mediator? Well, it's because of our sin. Our, our sin that separates us from a holy God creates this, this separation, this gap, where we need rescued. Before I became a Christian, the Bible tells me that I was God's enemy. It says that I was dead in my trespasses and that I was incapable of saving myself. It's not that I was doing pretty well or that I just needed, you know, cleaned up around the edges. I was his enemy, and my crime was so severe that I deserved to die and be eternally separated from God. Paul tells us in Romans that the wages of sin is death. That's why a way was needed. So I ask, what way of salvation are you believing? Have you placed your trust in Jesus as the only way to God? If you haven't, would you cry out to him today? Would you ask him to show you the depths of your pride and rebellion? Ask him to show you the futility of seeking salvation in any other way. Would you ask him to breathe life into you today that you might trust Jesus as the only way to God? So we see in Jesus' final instructions to his disciples that he tells them that he is the way. Next, let's consider Jesus as the truth. Um, I wonder, when I first read this, and even looking at it more, I wonder why Jesus included the statements about being the, the truth and the life in this passage. You know, wouldn't it have been sufficient for him to just say, I am the way, no one comes to the Father except through me? Perhaps he could have done that, but he didn't. And for this, the disciples' sake and for our sake, I'm glad he didn't because these two additional descriptions uh, further clarify or give us more information about his nature and why it is that, that the disciples could trust him and why it is that we can trust him. And, and similar to our first point, Jesus isn't just a way or a, excuse me, a truth. He's not my truth or your truth, but he is the truth. He's the definitive truth. In order for us to understand what it means for Jesus to be the truth um, and why that was important to the disciples and why that's important for us today, we need to consider briefly some basic principles about truth and knowledge. Um, just, I ask you to stay with me here just a, briefly. It may feel just a little bit like philosophy class, um, but it'll be helpful for us to understand why it is what we believe about truth, why that matters. Um, and for, for this, I'm grateful for a Christian philosopher uh, by the name of J.P. Moreland for his help in understanding this and for some of the examples that I'm going to share. So from a philosophical standpoint, something is true if it matches with what is real. And that begs two questions. First, what is real? And second, how can we know what is real? How can we have confidence about that? Um, I was always taught, as a science major, I was always taught that what we can know about reality is limited to what we can observe through our five senses. So that's called empirical knowledge. Um, and it's certainly true that some things are real, some things are true because you can observe them um, and you can see it over and over again. And so I'm not arguing with that. I think that's, that's true. Um, I just want to make the point that there are other forms of knowledge that go beyond our observation skills. So certainly I agree that, uh, for example, water can exist in three different states depending on the temperature it's exposed to. It can be a solid, a liquid, or a gas. And I could demonstrate that to you over and over and over again, and we'd get the same results. So that's an example of empirical knowledge or observable knowledge. 
But what about things that can't be observed with our five senses? Uh, think, for example, about your thoughts or your feelings. Um, we all know that we have them, um, but we can't observe them with our five senses. You may be able to observe the effects of your emotions, but you can't see them, taste them, smell them, touch them, okay? Um, so, but yet we know they're real. We all know what it's like to feel angry or to feel sad, uh, but those aren't things that can be directly observed. Um, and then also for claims of morality and beauty, we can know things even without being able to observe them with our senses. So, for instance, we can have moral knowledge that murder is wrong, and we can have aesthetic knowledge that flowers are beautiful, and those claims can't be proven with science, and you'd be hard-pressed to argue that they're not true. So again, truth is what is real, it's reality, and knowledge of reality is not limited to our five senses. And according to Jesus in the Bible, there's a spiritual reality in addition to the physical reality. Angels and demons are real, heaven and hell are real, um, Jesus is the Son of God and creator of all things, that is real. Our souls are real. And we must trust that Jesus can know these things and make them known to us and claim that they are so. And that's what he's doing here when he says that he is the truth. We must trust that he is the ultimate reality. He is the creator, the sustainer, and the revealer of what's real. And he's the authority. It's not what I say is real or what you say is real. It's what Jesus says. And as the one who reveals reality, Jesus is also the embodiment of the Father. So he reveals what God the Father is like to us. Um, Colossians 1.15 tells us that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. And in Hebrews 1.3, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And for these reasons, Jesus is going to tell his disciples later, just a few verses later in our passage, that anyone who has seen him has seen the Father. So Jesus is the truth. He's the source of truth, and he reveals the Father. He tells us and shows us what God the Father is like. So again, I ask you, why does all this talk about truth and knowledge matter? Well, it matters because we live from our beliefs, okay? All of our decisions, the way we respond to trials and suffering, um, the way we treat other people, the way we worship God, all of that comes from what we believe. Some of us may have a hard time articulating it um, or putting a name on our worldview, but that affects everything about us. What we believe about the purpose of life, where to find true happiness, what's virtuous or how to become a good person, all of those things, all of our beliefs about those things really make a big difference. They're really important. And also matters because those who don't know the truth about what is real are not truly living. They're not truly living. So they're out of sync with reality. Um, it's kind of like they're, you know, fighting against the current. They're blinded, lost, and in darkness, the Bible tells us. They're in bondage, slaves to sin, without God and without hope. But Jesus says, I am the truth. And he also says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's John 8, 12. That's why truth matters. And Jesus tells us that he is the ultimate truth. And by reasoning, therefore, any truth that denies or devalues or contradicts with Jesus or his teaching, it's not true, it doesn't glorify God, and it's not for our good. 
Let me just say that one more time. Any truth that denies or devalues or contradicts Jesus or his teaching, it's not true, it doesn't glorify God, and it's not for our good. So we see included in Jesus' final instructions to his disciples, he tells them that he is the way and he is the truth. Lastly, let's consider Jesus as the life. <clears throat> when I was younger, uh, I can't remember how old I was exactly, maybe I was seven or eight, but I was scared of dying, and specifically I was scared of going to hell. You know, even at that young age, I had a sense that physical death wasn't the end, that heaven and hell were real, and, you know, I figured if I was going to end up in one of those two places, well, obviously I wanted to go to heaven. Um, it's pretty logical. So I asked my mom if she could help me, you know, kind of understand what that was like, and so I'd have some confidence or some reassurance. What I wanted was eternal life, um, but I didn't really understand fully what eternal life was. I didn't understand fully the offer of the gospel, and I didn't understand what Jesus means here when he says that he is the life. I thought eternal life meant going to heaven when I died, and believing the right things about God was my ticket to getting there. Um, and, and it's certainly true that going to heaven is a part of eternal life, but eternal life is so much more than just, just going to heaven after we die. Um, eternal life is about Jesus becoming the king of my life and the treasure of my soul now, not just when I die. Um, and for me at that time, Jesus was really just a means to an end. And I think at times for a lot of us, believing the right things about Jesus so we can go to heaven when we die or so we can have our ticket is kind of where we stop in our interaction with him. And if that's where we stop in our interaction with Jesus, where there's so much of life that we're missing out on, the life that we were created for, um, we really fall short of that. We really fall short of living the life that is truly life. Jesus defines eternal life um, in John 17, verse 3, where he's speaking to God the Father, and he says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So eternal life is not just going to heaven when we die. Eternal life is knowing God through Jesus now. Um, and similar to our main point about Jesus as the truth, knowing God through Jesus is synonymous with living life the way we were created to live it. It's synonymous with living life in the light. It's synonymous with living life to the full. It's living the life that is truly life. Jesus says in John 10.10, as he's speaking of Satan, he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Or the NIV puts it, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Life that is truly life. That's what Jesus offers. And listen to how David um, experienced the life that is truly life. As he records it, he's talking about God as his good shepherd in Psalm 23, well-known psalm. But listen as David, how he describes it. He says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Have you ever considered that, like what it means to lie down in green pastures and why that's significant? So that uh, means that the sheep has eaten his fill. He has a full belly. He's satisfied. And he's not wanting anything else. He's full. And so, that, so for that reason, he can lay down. Even though there's green pastures before him, he can rest because he's had enough. 
The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. How much of our sin and unbelief is the result of our unfulfilled wants and desires? How much of the angst and tension and worry that we experience on a daily basis is because of some unmet need or unmet desire? Wouldn't it be amazing to experience the fullness of life with God as our good shepherd so that we lacked nothing? Like, that is life. That's amazing to think about. And I'm not promoting here uh, the prosperity gospel. I'm just giving a vision of life where God's desires become our desires and we're satisfied in him. We're fully satisfied in him, lacking nothing, wanting nothing, contentment. That is a life characterized by love, joy, and peace. That is the life that is truly life. This morning, we looked, we've looked at three bold, life-giving descriptions of Jesus. Um, and these things we can come back to. These can be foundational truths for us as we fight against unbelief, as we fight against temptation or doubt or worry um, to help us. These can, but by trusting in who Jesus is in these ways, it can help us to glorify God, to love our neighbor as ourself, and to experience the life that he created us to live. So my reminder to myself, my plea to you this morning, is to trust in Jesus. Trust that he will come again, as our passage tells us. Trust that if you're his, your future home is with him in heaven. Trust that he is the only way to the Father. Trust that he is true, and in him there is no falsehood. And trust that he is the source of life that is truly life. In closing, let's consider two types of people. The first person has never professed faith in Jesus Christ. They've never repented of their sin, and they remain in rebellion against God. They remain confused about the reality of where true life is to be found. If you're that person this morning, would you cry out to Jesus for forgiveness? Would you ask Jesus to become the king of your life and the treasure of your soul? You can do that this morning. If you need help or have questions, please come speak to me or someone afterwards. And the second person, like me, is already a Christian, but you struggle at times to trust Jesus with your whole life. That's the, that's the nature of the battle of a believer, right? Moment by moment, trusting in Jesus, we struggle at times. Um, we struggle to be satisfied in all that God is for us in Jesus. We have these unmet desires or wants. Um, and my prayer is that God would increase all of our faith, that we would meditate on who Jesus is, on what he's done and what he will do, and that he would give us um, hope and confidence in him so that we could experience the freedom and the power and the joy of living life, trusting him, of really experiencing that life that's truly life. So let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Jesus, thank you for telling us um, what you're like. Um, Thank you for revealing the Father to us. Thank you that we can have confidence um, in you uh, because of how great you are. Lord, you're without limit. Um, You're all-knowing, all-powerful, and yet caring, gentle, and kind. Lord, we're just so thankful for who you are, for what you've done, and we just pray for your help. Um, For those of us that haven't trusted you, would you breathe new life today? And for those of us who struggle to trust you moment by moment, would you increase our faith? Would you show us your greatness? Help us to worship you and to trust you more. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.